0: talking about it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on 900 chml
1: hey it's hamilton today i'm curtis thompson scott's son will weber is on the board willerskin is in the cloud in the newsroom diana weeks and dave woodard look at that another weekend and we're all still here to talk about it happy monday
0: everyone here, Scott Thompson!
2: Ah, there you go. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Oh, yes, doing fine. How about you, Scott?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well, too. So uh, I know we're going to talk about Elon Musk, but uh, I want to talk to you about uh, the news conference earlier today, Dr. Kieran Moore. Uh, and many were like, "Where is he? Where is he? What? Tell us what's going on!" And he came out today and basically reiterated what he said to us last time he chatted, and that's uh, encouraging everybody to get boosted. The fact that they've lowered the age to sixty, uh, and obviously wear a mask uh, in high risk situations, and for those that that feel the need, and and then I guess the new uh, information antivirals uh, being available, and and talk to your doctor about that. What are your thoughts on where we are? And, and you know, I, I had COVID during Christmas. I thought that was the fourth wave. Uh, and now apparently we're edging on the sixth. I must have slept through the fifth. I'm not sure when the fifth was. <laughs> I, I really don't know when the fifth is. And not a word of a lie, Alyssa. I've asked four doctors that over the course of the last week. And they've all had the same reaction you. They've laughed. I, where did the fifth go? I, I don't remember that one.
1: You know, all the days and all the ways seem to be running into one another, Scott. And I think that it's interesting that Kieran Moore, you know, reared his head and went, oh, yes, I'm still here. While everybody is suffering from COVID and you're wondering where your whole workforce is. You know, it's interesting about the masking. I think in Quebec, they're not lifting their mask mandate until the end of April. Yet we lifted ours. And when's the last time you had any sort of numbers or any sort of sense where this province is vis-a-vis um, COVID infections? Well, you're not, and we seem to be getting it from the wastewater. So there's been absolutely no word of it from the government, who I think wants us to pretend that there is no longer any COVID, at least until June when there's an election, except that there is. And I am hearing more often than not, and I think that, you know, people in their own friend circles and their own family circles are hearing about people who are really just dropping, quite frankly, you know, uh, with COVID in in the numbers. Uh, All I know is is that when I go out, I would say that more people than not are erring on the side of caution and still wearing masks. And Mm -hmm. I would see it around Toronto. You know, I was in Kingston over the weekend, so I'm seeing it in another centre outside of Toronto. So I think that people themselves don't believe that, um, you know, COVID is gone. And I think that there was a lot of us who thought, remember, Scott, we used to talk and go, well, you know, eventually we're going to have to learn to live with the disease. Well, this is what that is and i don't think that we are completely ready for it
2: is anybody pretending that it's gone though and you know everybody keeps barking about the testing well as and if you ask any testing expert on this once it gets to the point where the samples are saturated in other words everybody has it or most people have had it or touched on it testing really isn't of any use and the other point is obviously there are way more that have this than we're testing and again, the hospital rates are staying relatively low. And as Dr. Moore pointed out, and many others have, this is living with it. If you're fully vaccinated and, and it, you get it, you'll be, you know, mildly ill and then you'll move on. Some who are at high risk, those limited will, of course, get, get more ill. But even as Kieran Moore pointed out, uh, pointed out today, uh, even with the kids, there just isn't, you know, we may be getting it, but we're not getting, we're not being hospitalized by it. It's not crippling the hospital see, uh, system. So uh, you know, you counter that with the mental health of of being mandated something. I mean, I don't know what people are expecting. You know,
1: it's interesting, Scott. And, and 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 what you just said is, if you're not going to talk about numbers, and if that's not what you see your role as as the government anymore, then what are you going to talk about to people? And again, the messaging here is so lackluster. So if we are in the midst of living and learning to live with uh, the virus, tell us what that means. Say that, you know, you might get it and if you have a cold or if you you know do test or there's other people who I know are triple vaxxed and have had much more than a cold and have been much more adversely affected, not got into the hospital, which is definitely the rate marker here. Right. Mm-hmm. But still really, really sick. And it's as if we sort of know and you know, what to expect and we don't know what to expect. I don't think there's anything wrong in a government showing leadership and saying, okay, this is the part that we're in. We're not going to mandate anymore, but this is exactly what you need to know. Just in the same way that when the pandemic first started, they had all the ads that stay two feet apart, continually wash your hands, and mask. And those are three simple messages that still ring in our ears today. So why not give us three simple messages that say, okay, so this is what living with it means, and this this is how you can comport yourself accordingly, But or not. But we're giving you all the information in order to live with it and be comfortable.
2: I. That's exactly what I got from his news conference today. So I can see the only complaint would be that they he should have done it a week ago. Two. I mean, again, there's yeah, there's absolutely. But wait, you know, and I, and I and I and I totally understand that, Alyssa. So like, do it more, do it more, do it more. Get out in front of it. Totally get it. But nothing's changed here. Nothing has changed. We're seeing a rise in cases, as everyone predicted. Like everybody making a big stink about this. A report says that such a direct link between them taking off the mask and cases going up. Well, we knew all of that. We knew that before we took the masks off. They said that. So, again, I don't think the message has changed at all. And those are, and he ended with three messages, one about masking, uh, one about antiviral, and I forgot what the other one was. But, you know, it's the same yeah, stuff we're hearing over and over again.
1: Yeah, but Pardon so me? how can we have to be pushed into doing this? I mean, really? there was obviously so many complaints and so many calls that you're absolutely hiding from this that you got to do something so you put Kieran Moore in front and, and and so you should because it's more of a voice of authority so when the fourth booster came out uh, you know I was talking you know with my husband with my friends, yeah. are you gonna get it well we hear that there's a better one coming out in fall don't ask me where but this is what we hear and then all of a sudden it's like no I made my appointment at the drugstore and I'm going to get it but you know, not everybody is a privy to the same amount of information, Scott. Not everybody is mm-hmm. privy to having the same um, sources of information. Like some people, you know, we get it from our friend groups and then look, you know, to a professional source. Some people don't have that at all. So, yes, you're talking about the messages that are being reiterated. But honestly, you know as well as I do that even any ad campaign knows that uh, someone has to Frequency, them, yep. What is it yep. three to five times. Yeah. So, You know what? You can't say it often enough.
2: I hear you. It makes total sense. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Let's bring in Dr. uh, Isaac Bogosh. Get his take. Staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases, associate professor, University of Toronto. And with us now, doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
3: Yeah, not too bad. How are you holding up?
2: I'm doing pretty good considering where we are. I mean, what the heck? We're all in this together, right, doctor? But one thing I wanted to ask you before we get, uh, to the specifics of today, uh, I was, uh, we got sick in our family over the holidays, over the Christmas holidays, and, um, you know, fully vaccinated. So we were fine. Uh, just actually got my booster this week after the three month period or so was over. I thought that was the fourth wave. And now we're talking about the sixth. What happened? When did we, when was the fifth? It's almost, did I sleep through the fifth?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. So first wave, we all remember. That was the nastiness of uh, you know, March, April, May. Second wave, we had uh, in the fall of 2020. So that was sort of the November, December, January. Third wave, my humble opinion, was by far the worst. If you were working in a hospital, mm-hmm. that was this time last year, the alpha variant. Fourth wave, we in Ontario had a very small fourth wave. We had a bump. That was our Delta variant in the fall of this year, of uh, 2021. Alberta and Saskatchewan got crushed. We had a very small uh, bump. We thought we would get through unscathed. Then Omicron came around. That was our fifth wave. In Picked up in December, January, February, uh, receded in March. And now this is six with his Omicron redux, which is a so it- two subvariant.
2: So it was the fourth I kind of missed, and it was the fifth that was actually Omicron. That's (laughs) right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so so much for explaining that. Sorry. All right. No, that's fine. That's great. It's it's nice to know. Uh, Thank you for the clarity there. All right. Your thoughts on what we heard this morning from Dr. Kieran Moore.
3: I mean, big picture to me was the antivirals rolling out. We know it's not the only thing that's going to protect Ontario, but it's an important piece of a much larger puzzle. It's decentralized. You're going to be able to get access to this in over 4,000 pharmacies. Yeah, there's still barriers. You need a prescription. You need to uh, at least even be aware that this exists. But if you are positive, you can get uh, get tested perhaps more readily at these assessment centres get a script by a doc at the assessment centers or a family physician. Even have a, They even said you could have a positive rapid test and, uh, and have access to these antivirals. Hey, listen, this will go a long way in keeping people at risk of hospitalization out of hospital. I think we're doing something good with that
2: uh that pretty much the only new information here from last time other than the lowering of the vaccination rate to 60 years old for those looking for uh the fourth dose not any change on masking your thoughts there should the you know and i'm sure you're you're tired of answering this question but should we be making masking mandatory or the fact that so many people are are infected and we are managing the hospital situation due to the high uptake in vaccine, it's it's a different scenario. Help us understand, doctor.
3: Okay, this is like, when you ask 20 different people, you're going to get 20 different answers here. My take, I, you know, I appreciate people disagree with me on this, or at least some do. I, I thought they lifted the mandate too soon. I thought, you know, there were clear indications uh, of several weeks ago that cases were on the rise. I, I thought that it was just too soon to lift that mandate at that point i thought let's see what happens and once this uh wave recedes then it's a reasonable time uh they obviously lifted the mandate just because the mandate's lifted that doesn't mean don't wear masks it's quite the opposite you heard kieran moore today say you should be wearing a mask indoors he didn't say it exactly like that but it was that was the message i heard and and he's right like you should be wearing a mask indoors there's a lot of COVID out there you don't have a mandate to wear a mask, but that doesn't, you know, you still should be wearing a mask indoors. So I think the mandate was lifted too soon. I know some agree with me. I know some very strongly disagree with me. Okay. We're all entitled to our opinions. We'll still get through this wave one way or another.
2: Uh, The fact that cases are on the rise and the majority of our vaccinated and we're not seeing, you know, although we're seeing cases on the rise with the max mask mandate being uh, dropped, uh, we're not searing this seeing the severity. Is that accurate?
3: Yes and no. I mean, you, you're still seeing a bump in hospitalizations and uh, and those are expected to continue to climb because I think we're still in the growth phase of this particular wave. Um, yeah, it's fair to say that COVID is a different uh infection in the sense that it's just in a vaccinated individual, it just doesn't cause the same degree of severe clinical manifestations. And when you have a vaccinated population, I mean, we're so much better off now than had we been facing this crunch of COVID in a pre-vaccine era. Having said that, when you have, you know, such a contagious variant and enough people get sick all at the same time, even a small percentage of people that get severely ill, Uh, you know, when you have a small percentage of a massive number of people getting sick at the same time, there still ends up being a lot of people in hospital. So I still think we got to be careful of that. The other thing that we don't talk about enough with, at least with this wave, is uh, healthcare personnel, right? Mm. People, even though they work in a hospital, they still live and interact with the community around them. And there's just a lot of people who are absent because they were sick or they were exposed. And, you know, we just don't have as many hands on deck. So, you know, even with a milder bump, it's you're still feeling the stress in the healthcare system. So you got to be careful here.
2: In an unrelated, but sort of related question, are you concerned that, uh, the discussions that we were having during the first, second, whatever waves of this pandemic in regard to how our healthcare system needs some more attention? Our healthcare workers have been, have been screaming and yelling for decades (laughs) now. Are, are you concerned that, you know, as we move away or, you know, become accustomed to this, that we don't have that discussion? We forget about it. We move on to other things.
3: Yeah, I mean healthcare and also long-term care too. I mean, you know, there's a few things that were raised during the pandemic where I hope we don't lose momentum. Healthcare, of course. I mean, this is a long-term strategy. You can't snap your fingers and say, "Oh, hey, guess what? We've got you know blank thousand more beds and all the personnel to staff it." I mean, that that requires a long-term vision, and, and I hope we don't forget that. Long-term care, of God, remember in the pre-vaccine era, wave one and wave two it was a disaster. We had thousands and. Thousands of needless deaths, and uh, and uh, all the weaknesses in our long term care sector, where I uh, highlighted the other thing too. A year ago to the day, this time last year, people are shouting from the rooftops to get vaccines out and protect essential workers. I hope we don't lose momentum on really protecting you know, essential workers, migrant workers, uh, people who, you know, communities that are disproportionately impacted, not just by COVID, but by, you know, other health outcomes as well. I hope we don't lose that that momentum toward providing equitable care for,
2: uh, for our communities. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor, University of Toronto. As always, doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well.
0: Have a good one. Nice to chat. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: A few weeks ago now, we heard about a little dust up, uh, as uh, Will Erson calls it, a bit of a salty relationship between Frito-Lay and Loblaws over product and prices and such. And then the next thing you know, the product uh, was uh, was gone from Loblaws shelves. Not like a toilet paper thing, but different. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Uh, Yes, I am. Thanks very
2: much. So give us a capsulated version of what happened here, Ian, and if all of this is good or bad for the consumer.
4: Um, Actually, I'll go in reverse order. Uh, I think this is uh, uh, good news, and I'll explain why. Um, They were fighting over the price. (laughs) They were Hmm. having a a great big fight over the price, and and it wasn't because both sides wanted the price higher. Uh, One side did, one side didn't. So Loblaws, being the buyer, they're not the final consumer, but they're the buyer, said to Frito-Lay, you know, uh, our customers are price sensitive, basically, that's why they're doing this, so we want you to be more um, aggressive on your pricing, that is to say, price it more finely. And Frito-Lay is a great big company, it's part of the PepsiCo empire, and uh, they refused. And so it was two giants a retailing giant against the food processing giant. And, uh, you know, it wasn't that different between that fight two or three or four years ago between uh, Walmart on the one side and Visa on the other. Mm. So from time to time this happens. And it's uh, where the, the, uh, the one side the retailer, Walmart or in this instance, Loblaws, believes that they have a lot of bargaining power because they have an awful lot of stores and millions of customers. And so they wanted to get a, a, a lower price, a better price, and Freo Lay and Visa back several years ago thought, "Hey, we got a very strong brand. Uh, our customers value our brand, and uh, so we're not going to budge." And so it, they, they, it literally went to the point that they had a little strike. <laughs> we don't call it strikes when two companies disagree like that, but Loblaw said, "Okay." You're not matching, you're not cooperating with the price we want, so we're pulling your products off the shelf. So that's the equivalent of two corporations going on strike with one another. Hmm. That's the way to do it, to sort of use labor language, you know, for those who are familiar with labor law or labor relations, you know. So this was a little strike between Frito-Lay and and, uh, Loblaws, and then uh, they finally... um, the strike is now over. Uh, they settled their disagreements. And I'm, we don't know the details, but I'm guessing they probably saw it off somewhere in the middle, in between the demands of the two parties.
2: We know that for food companies, there's always the fight for shelf space. Yes. Uh, wouldn't Frito-Lay be worried that, well, you know, if, if, uh, if Frito-Lay's not on that chip rack, then somebody else is going to be. What about exactly. the fight yeah. for that shelf space?
4: Uh, Scott, you've asked an excellent question, and sorry for me using my uh, showing off my little words here, my, my from my strategy course. Okay, <laughs> but uh, you're, you're absolutely right. They they had uh, they had bargaining power. Um, uh, Loblaw's had bargaining power, and they can use the shelf positioning. It's not just are you on the shelf. But there's a real science now mm. for the marketing people of what level on the shelf, because food products down by your ankles is not an <laughs> ideal location, and, and whereas at eye level is a much better location. And so Loblaws can not only negotiate or try to negotiate the price, but they can offer as an incentive, well, look, we'll put you at the end of the aisle where your product is more visible, and we can put you at eye level, and uh, we'll give you a better location. Because, no kidding, I'm, I'm making this up, location in the store, I'm talking not real estate location of your house, location in the store of where you put the product, whether it's at eye level, ankle level, end of the aisle, middle of the aisle, is it influences consumer purchase. And so they've got a lot of variables to play with. And... um so uh, I, they obviously negotiated, and I'm sure there was very hard. I would love to have been a fly on the wall. Uh, they did some hard negotiations on both sides, and they finally came up with that famous deal that is mutually beneficial.
2: So what does this mean for us? Uh, it, this happens all the time. Does business learn anything from this?
4: Uh, I think so. Um, uh, What uh, the manufacturers, sorry, the food processors, but they're the equivalent of manufacturers because they're at the middle of the value chain. Um, The retailers like Loblaws are downstream selling direct to the consumer. I think the food processors, manufacturers, they realize that the retailers are not going to accept uh, whatever they uh, announce. You know, in other words, you know, Visa did certain things and the Walmart said, wait a minute, you know, we don't accept that. So you can't just assume that the client you're partnering with is going to accept your changes. And it suggests that you need, just like governments have uh, diplomats, you know, in the foreign affairs division to deal with relations with other countries, big corporations, large corporations, these giants, they need to have shall we say very good relationships and foreign relations with their the the big retailers because you see what we're talking about is pardon the language but oligopoly you know a, a giant corporation on one side dealing with giant corporations on the other giant food processors dealing with giant retailers and uh, and they both have power they both are very well capitalized they both got billions of dollars of, of inventory and, and technology, and they've got millions or hundreds of thousands of employees. So it's, you know they're, they're sophisticated on both sides of the negotiations. And so what it means is, is that you've got to, the, the, the food processors are going to have to learn from this, that the, the retailers, because it's viciously competitive, are going to be pushing back more and more. Hmm. So they're going to have to be prepared
2: to deal with that. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Fried O'Lay back on the shelves of Loblaws. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much.
1: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900
0: CXMW.
2: To watch the Masters this weekend, always a big event, especially for those that uh, love chasing the ball around and certainly a sign of the season to come. But what was the big story? Was it the winner or Tiger making his triumphant return? To talk more about all of this, Jason Logan is with us, editor of Score Golf Magazine and with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
5: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: So what's the bigger story here, Jason? The actual winner or uh, Tiger Woods' comeback?
5: Well, I would say from uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it was Tiger Woods' comeback. And then on Sunday, I think uh, full credit to Scottie Scheffler for winning. I think by the final round, um, the Tiger story had moved to the back burner a little bit, and it was time to focus on the contenders themselves. And certainly Scottie Scheffler put together a fantastic performance on Sunday, the world number one going into the event wins his first major championship in relatively easy fashion and full value to him for doing so.
2: All right, before we get back to Tiger, uh, Scotty Scheffler, uh, went in and at one point I think was, uh, man, he was ahead by five, six, uh, you know, and then, uh, I think coming into Sunday was only ahead by maybe three. Uh, and, you know, it, we always, we always know what happens on the last day. That's where you, uh, where you either make it or break it. Uh, are you surprised he was to keep the consistency all the way through and just hung on and, and even increase his lead?
5: I would say disappointed to be honest with you a little bit, I think golf fans, especially, um, watching the masters, we want to see it close. Uh, Yeah, the best masters tournaments are always the ones where four or five guys have a legitimate chance. And then that golf course, a black nine on Sunday with how many, um, danger zones there are, but also how many scoring opportunities there are. We want to see fireworks. Um, yeah, he had stretched it to seven at one point on Saturday. um, was leading by three to begin Sunday, got it to five and eventually won by three. And only because he, well, I don't know what he did on the 18th hole. Yeah. I guess emotion got the better of him and he, and he made double bogey and had a, had a bunch of putts, but, um, um, a little bit surprised because, you know, he was trying to win his first major championship. Um, and so you do expect some nerves to get to him, but the way when he, when he held out on the third hole, you know, he chipped in from for, for birdie on the third hole, uh, when it looked like maybe you know he could make a big number there after Cameron Smith had closed the lead to one, from that point on, mm. I mean he was in complete control.
2: And it seemed that that's you know he was in control. It was behind him that was that was struggling. Who was going to win second, third?
5: Yeah, exactly. And as I alluded to, it's just a little bit disappointing. I mean, to me, like this is kind of three duds in a row for the Masters. Um, Dustin Johnson won by five in twenty twenty the November Masters where there were no patrons on the ground. Hideki Matsuyama only won by one last year, but it was only because he made a couple late bogeys and Will Dallatoris kind of came from nowhere and made some birdies coming home. And So so that tournament was kind of, you know, it was basically over midway through the back nine and it just appeared close. And then Sheffield wins by three. got to go back all the way to Tiger Woods. Um, speaking of the man we opened the segment with in 2019 to find a Masters that was exciting right down to the finish line.
2: So your thoughts on Tiger's performance uh, obviously uh, every in the the crowd reaction was spectacular but surprised to even today saying yeah I'm going to keep playing.
5: Yeah what we've heard from him is that he is committed to playing the Open Championship in July for sure and that's that's a very important tournament Tiger Woods has a great appreciation for golf history and that will be the 150th British Open being played at the old course in St. Andrews, the home of golf, Tiger Woods has said many times that the old course is his favorite course in the world, even more so than Augusta National. So I'm not surprised at all that he has committed to that tournament, especially since that course is you know, basically flat and it will be a much easier walk for him than Augusta National. Um, between now and then, we're not really sure he wouldn't commit to the PGA Championship the next major in a month's time. He didn't really talk about the US Open in June. Those will both be played on really tough golf courses they'll be tough tournaments maybe he won't be recovered in time to play the pj championship but it's nice to know that we are at least going to see him again and it, it'll be fun to see him play an open championship again on the old course
2: uh as you mentioned uh obviously getting around the course one of the biggest challenges for him and as the weekend progressed you could see his limp becoming more pronounced
5: mm-hmm. yeah and that's kind of what i think we all expected coming into this event that um, he would have enough raw talent and enough knowledge and enough know-how around Augusta national to probably get to the weekend. But when he eventually did, you know, endurance was going to catch up to him and listen, mm. he, he came back to a really tough masters. I mean, it was really, really cold on Saturday. Yeah, there. You yeah. saw everybody wearing toques and all the patrons wearing hoodies and I mean, that just does not do wonders for a body who has gone through as much aches and pains as he has. So um, maybe he would have fared a little bit better if he was playing in 80-degree temperatures every day. But that just wasn't the case. And um, so not surprised to see him limping and struggling a little bit. Maybe a little bit surprised just to see how poorly he putted. Um he hit the ball pretty good, but his mm-hmm. wasn't even close to Tiger Woods' standards. And he kept on telling us that, you know, putting and chipping, I'm fine. Um, but putting, he wasn't fine. Um, and that was a little bit surprising for me. Um, it just goes to show that even one of the greatest to ever do it is not immune to, uh, to rust, having not played competitive golf in over 500 days.
2: That's what keeps us all going. Uh, Jason Logan with us, editor of Score Golf Magazine, talking about the 2022 Masters and the return of Tiger Woods. And, of course, Scotty uh, Schleffler winning the, the tournament. Jason, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We've seen the horrific images coming out of Ukraine. We're hearing uh, of how things are about to ramp up, uh, if you're to believe the uh, the information coming out of uh, Russia. And and you have to you have to think of how these images have made an impact around the world. And I remember reading back in the day of the uh, the Vietnam War. This was sort of the first war that came into our living rooms, came in through our television uh sets and such and and it it greatly changed the way we view this sort of conflict is the same or will the same happen here let's bring in uh, jeffrey dvorkin senior fellow at massey college former director of journalism at the university of toronto scarborough and author of trusting the news in a digital age jeffrey thanks for the time i hope you're well
6: I'm well, Scott. Nice to be with you.
2: Uh, again, we remember those images uh, or reading of those images in uh, Vietnam and how when they came into the living rooms of those in America, how it greatly changed uh, their position on the war. Do you think the same thing will happen here, especially with uh, President uh, Zelensky as being as forward as he is uh, in his presentations? And, and pretty much uh, we'll talk to anybody who wants to listen.
6: Well, I think we are seeing the war being fought as well in on various media platforms. And uh, we're seeing the horror of this war in pretty grim reality and in a way that when the first pictures came back from Vietnam and I was a 20-something kid working in the CBS Bureau in London as the overnight mm-hmm. kid. And in those days, the film, because there was no video then, The film was sent by plane from Saigon to London, and it was Mm. developed in the Bureau. We had our own lab. And if the producers and the managers thought the story was really important, then we would have to beg, borrow and, well, not steal, uh, access to the BBC's satellite connection to New York to get the story over to New York for the Cronkite news, for the evening news on CBS. It was absolutely shocking to me as a 20 something person uh, fascinated by how these visuals would have an impact as they went into people's houses over the supper hour. And of course there was a certain amount of shock and restraint on the part of the journalists in London, putting together these stories, showing absolutely horrific scenes of carnage, certainly of Americans, but also of Vietnamese. And the fact is that when Cronkite went over to Vietnam to see for himself and he came back and he reported, he said, this war cannot be won. This is a war that America has already lost. And when Lyndon Johnson heard that, he said, If I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the war in Vietnam. The question is, will the war in Ukraine have a similar impact inside Russia? What we're seeing now or what we're reading now is that the Russian government, the Putin government, is basically threatening people who are opposed to the war, who speak out against the war inside Russia. So I think the dynamic is now very fluid um, we're seeing a lot more, uh, I guess, anxiety and, and, and revulsion in the West as to what's going on in Ukraine. Whether that pushes governments in the United States and Britain and, other, and Germany, perhaps, to act in a more uh, effective military way, I think we're on the verge of seeing something like that start to emerge right now.
2: And interesting you two different points there reaction of the allies and citizenry in those allied countries and reaction to those in russia will- Ru- will Russians see the same images that we have all seen
6: That's a really good question. I'm sure there are ways in which uh, people in Russia are getting access to the same information that we have the internet of course has changed everything and uh, we are uh we're seeing how uh, people can go around official sources of information around mainstream media and gather the information themselves. But that loophole, that that flexibility also allows for doxers and bloggers and, and uh, people who want to manipulate the information and send out disinformation, how they're able to send other kinds of messages. So, for example, there is a anti-Russian regiment inside Ukraine called the Azov regiment, which is allegedly uh, committing war crimes from the Ukrainian side. So we are now in the, at a time when we're dealing with competing uh, levels of animosity and, and horror. And so what we need now, in my opinion, is the most reliable sources of information that we can find but we are going to see um, our populations in the West and in Canada uh, pushed in in different directions. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that I'm going to be watching for is that strong tradition of neutrality and even pacifism that has always been part of the left in Canada, and certainly part of the old NDP, the CCF, and and the and the younger newer. NDP members who are uh, a little less enthusiastic about committing military uh, materiel and maybe even troops from the Canadian side of things. So I think we're, we're at a very interesting tipping point in how the war is being portrayed in Canada and how the politicians are going to handle it
2: russia says of course all these images are staged can you play that card in a world of technology and especially if you look at any satellite photographs
6: well not as not as well as one used to be able to do that one of the things that i think is really interesting is how russia and in the in the soviet union used disinformation to actually fight the cold war to be opposed to what how the West was perceiving this new Soviet Union in the 20s, in the 1920s. And at one point, this little-known story about disinformation, um, there in Britain at the end of the war, of World War I, there was a standing army of about 4 million men. And there was something called the Zinoviev telegram, which was fake news back in the 1920s and it was leaked to some of the British papers claiming that this standing army in England was about to have a Bolshevik revolution in Britain. Well, you can imagine it freaked people out because they were already freaking out about what had gone on in Russia and the overthrow of all the old um, monarchical regimes in Europe, in in Germany, and in Italy, and, and, other, and in Austria, mostly. This idea of putting misinformation disinformation which is really malicious information set out is not a new thing mm. in in Russia the soviets were pretty good at it as were, as were the as, and now the russians are doing the same thing so we have to be really careful to triage the information we're receiving to ask where does this come from who originated this it, can we believe it
2: Jeffrey Dvorkin with a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Fascinating discussion. Thanks for sharing your stories, Jeff. Uh, much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Elon Musk, we talked uh, a while ago about buying interest uh, in Twitter, uh, then was going to be on the board and now is not going to be on the board. What's with the shift? Let's bring in Daniel Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research with Wedbush Investments in the United States and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here. So is this an investment for Elon Musk, or is this just a pet project? What what are his ambitions here? And I'm sure, you you know, you don't have a crystal ball there, but what are your thoughts?
7: Oh, well, I think this is more than an investment. I think strategically he wants to change Twitter. And ultimately getting on the board was, I think, their view to play nice in the sandbox. He obviously, you know, Musk is not someone that you're going to put in a square peg round the whole situation. Now with him, no, No, on the board, now becomes a hostile situation. I believe, you know, this is really gonna, you know, really be the start of what I view as almost a Game of Thrones battle between Musk and Twitter and its board.
2: So the fact that he is not going to be on the board suggests that he's going in for a bigger take. Then,
7: yeah, he'll go in for a bigger take. The filings we expect that to come out in the next week or two. And then it's about, okay, what is he going to do? Does that mean he's going to team up with private equity? Does he just own more and more? You know, how hostile does this get? Because him getting on the board, that was kind of the Cinderella story. Limits his share, gets on the board. And as anyone that followed him this weekend, I mean, in that tweet storm, clearly, you know, this is not going to be a friendly situation. And, you know, I think for Twitter, Exacts for the board. I mean, it's a it's a living nightmare to have someone like Musk as your foe.
2: So uh, he over the weekend too talking about going ad free. That must have spent sent everybody into a tailspin.
7: Look, I think if you were on the Twitter board on the weekend reading those tweet, you probably were drinking Jaegermeister or something wrong. <laughs> and I and because ultimately it just shows. Look, anyone that knows Musk. He's not just going to sit in some boardroom eating cheese and crackers saying yes or no on different board mandates. So I think Twitter thinking that Musk was going to stay silent and maybe not talk about Twitter strategy with his, he called it 80 million followers. And that that was just never going to happen. And now ultimately it goes from friend to foe. And now from a shareholder perspective in Twitter, it really is, okay, what's his next poker move?
2: So why doesn't Twitter want him there? Because he's trying to take over.
7: Well, I think Twitter wanted him in the board. And, of course, they wanted – that would have limited the stake to 14.9. Mm-hmm. It's Musk didn't want to be on the board because Musk was not going to go into the board, wasn't going to be silent, and that's not his DNA. And I think so- they recognized – that that was not going to happen, which is ultimately why you know we heard late last night that you know he will not be joining the Twitter board.
2: So is this similar to a Donald Trump? It's just it's somebody who wants their own platform. Well, no, he wants to change the Twitter platform,
7: mm-hmm.
2: and investors want to
7: change the Twitter platform because Twitter platform, regardless of pre-Trump, post-Trump, advertising's been an issue. So from an investor perspective, you know, Musk has really been knight in shining armor.
2: Where do you see this going?
7: I see getting out the popcorn and watching a 1980s-like corporate raider situation, because that's really what this is going to become, Musk going up against Twitter and the board.
2: Daniel Ives with us, Managing Director, Equity Research with Wedbush Investments in the United States. Daniel, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks.
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's Talk 900 CHML.
2: Last week we were talking about a federal budget, and uh, amazingly, you know, as we whether it's elections or, or what have you, uh, budgets, uh, there's always people doing polling and and seeing what priorities are and inflation and housing is a huge priority if not the top priority for a lot of Canadians let's bring in Dr. Frank Clayton Senior Research Fellow Center for Urban Research and Land Development with Ryerson University and with us now doctor thanks for the time I hope you're well
8: I'm fine thank you Scott
2: Uh, your thoughts on last week's budget does it make it easier for people to buy their first home
8: uh at some point it might, but it's really got uh, two forces at work. Uh, one is uh, we've got two things going on. One is what we've got to really do is increase the supply. Um, and we don't really want to increase demand, but the budget says it's going to increase supply, which is going to take time, but it's also going to increase demand by making more money available for, or subsidies available for, for first-time buyers to buy houses. So it does two has two effects, kind of offsetting effects, but... Uh, all this stuff will take a lot of time as well. But it's not going to happen overnight.
2: Uh, many have supply have said supply for many years, uh, and that doesn't really seem to get many's attention. I I, I I remember Sarah Palin saying, "You know, drill, baby, drill. Where's build, <laughs> baby, build? Why are we not building well, more? Where's where's the where's the snag? Where's the uh, where's the kink in this supply chain?"
8: Okay, well, let's let's go back. For, first of all, the, both the province with its recent uh, ch- uh, uh, proposed uh, changes to uh, the Planning Act and so on is, is focusing on supply. And the feds have a big amount of money in this uh, budget to focus on supply to try to get municip- encourage municipalities to bring more housing onto the market. So they are looking at supply, but it's taken a, taken a long time. Now the bottlenecks are twofold. One is one it's been there for a long time is the planning system. It's very, very difficult, uh, takes a long time, costly, uncertain uh, with the planning process that we have in Ontario, particularly in the Greater Golden Horseshoe, where it could take up to 10 years to bring a piece of land on the market uh, that's, uh, say, a greenfield piece of land that the municipality says we want, we're going to bring that into our urban boundary, and it still ten- takes up to 10 years before that land uh, can have a house built on it. So it's, just, it's a very time-consuming process, so it doesn't respond very quickly to changes in demand so that's the um uh that's the one side now in the shor- in the shorter term uh we now also have uh, because we're 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 building a lot of housing in canada like 240,000 units last year that's a heck of a, mo- a lot of units uh we never you know t- 10 years ago you never thought we would be building those numbers so because of that we got supply constraints both for labor and for materials uh because so a lot of the materials come from china and other places um uh, you know to build the the housing and labor we have so much labor, and when immigration falls off, like it did last year, um, we we get less labor for uh, you know for the house building industry. So coming in, so uh, so there's two bottlenecks now. Uh, they, 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 the land one will not solve itself overnight. The labor one, it will it will get better as as immigration goes up. And people can work. One thing about uh, labor is people can work longer hours. You can pay them overtime, and they'll work uh, longer hours. So that kind of gives a, some flexibility to the labor supply. But on the land supply, it's just uh, uh, there's just not enough land coming through the system to uh, to accommodate the uh, the new housing that's required.
2: Is this all still environmental issues? I mean, environmental issues, uh, developers big and bad, they eat up farmland. Uh, pretty soon we won't have anywhere to grow food. I mean, at what point do we balance this? Because clearly, uh, just like in other issues, COVID-19 has brought out weaknesses here, and now we're caught behind the eight ball. So uh, how do you speed this up?
8: Well, the, the way I, uh, the, the conservative government is doing its very best because uh, the liberal governments before, you know, the last government that was in power, they, they had one agenda. And that was environmental. And they didn't care what kind of housing. They wanted housing to be built, too, but they didn't care what kind of housing. A one-bedroom apartment was the same to them as a three-bedroom house or four-bedroom house. So at least the conservatives have uh, said, you know, not everybody wants to be in an apartment, so we're going to have to try to have a variety of housing. And when they brought the uh, growth plan for the uh, uh, Greater Golden Horseshoe, updated it in 2020, they actually have a good compromise between uh, increasing the supply of housing uh, and all types, not just apartments, and environmental goals. Now, they're not, you know, it's not an environmental totally, it's not a housing affordability totally, but it's a compromise between the two. And uh, I think if a, if the conservatives can do what you know get in power again and they they follow through with what they're proposing, uh, that'll be a, a a big start because it's a lot different than what the previous government did. I mean, yeah, I, mean, uh, I don't think I don't think anybody wants to go overboard and just say you know we should just forget everything else and just build housing. We, we've got to have absolutely a too.
2: Yeah, no, and it's got to be done smart. I mean, there's no two ways about that. But I think we've learned how to do that, have we not? Um, and we're having the same issue here in Hamilton about debating urban boundaries. It's such a hot topic. Uh, again, nobody wants to suck up farmland, yet nobody wants an apartment building uh, built on the vacant lot across in their neighborhood. Okay. Um, so <laughs> why, you know, how much infield building can we do in the average city? And hasn't COVID nineteen taught us that we don't want to be stacked up like corewood. So maybe the better option for those vacant lots is not putting a building on it, but maybe a park.
8: Uh, that's true. but Okay, Well, under the growth plan, municipalities in the Greater Golden Horseshoe basically have to put a minimum of 50% of their new housing in the build-up area. And that's that's quite a change from what we've been yeah. having over the past. So that's a, quite an environmental goal. I mean, it's going to reduce the number of uh, houses on greenfield land. But the other 50%, and that means it's going to be apartments. I know ninety percent of those will be apartments. Right. Uh, to have Greenfield, to have single, semi, townhouses, you really got to go on Greenfield land. So Hamilton Council was just off base totally. And I, I presume, I, I'm assuming that after the election uh, in June, the Conservatives will just tell them, "Forget it, guys. You're going to expand. Your, you're going to expand your boundaries." Um, is, is, a, ba- is is growth a
2: bad? Is growth a bad word?
8: Um. Uh, uh, well, it is and it isn't. Uh, when it comes to development charges, which all municipalities are charging, and I don't, I, can't, I don't know what Hamilton's are right now, but many municipalities in the GTA, they charge over $100,000 at the very beginning, before a builder can even get a building permit. Pays the municipality $100,000 plus to, for the right to get a building permit. And that's supposed to cover infrastructure and growth-related infrastructure costs. But, uh, they have a crazy definition of growth. Any new housing is growth. It has no benefits to anybody else. <laughs> it only has benefits to the developer. So the developer pays it and then charges the homeowner. Uh, but <clears> growth, <throat> we all benefit from growth. You know, we get jobs, we get higher uh, standard of income, we get productivity improvements. So therefore, society should be paying part of these growth costs. So a lot of that infrastructure cost should be taken off housing and put on the general taxpayers.
2: Are we going to see a change in the template, Frank, on how we approve these, how we do this? Are we going to change a, see a change in the system?
8: Well, the, the conservatives, again, are trying to, but the, the way they're trying to, is I'm not sure if it's going to work, is they're going to penalize municipalities uh, if they don't meet certain time, uh, time constraints on, uh, on uh, applications, for, exactly, for example, an official plan amendment or a zoning application or a building permit for, for uh, residential development. And uh, what they're going to do is tell the municipality that if, uh, if uh, you don't d- meet these timeframes, the developer doesn't have to pay you any money <laughs> for, for, for going through that process. Uh, probably the federal approach is probably better when they're putting a lot of money out that to, for municipalities. Only about four billion dollars, I think you're talking about, to encourage municipalities to accelerate the planning process. But they're giving them money, as opposed to penalizing them. So I think it's probably a better approach if you got the money, which the Fed seem to have for everything these days. Uh, you know, give give the municipalities money, give those municipalities money that accelerate their housing approvals.
2: Hmm. Dr. Frank Clayton, with a senior research fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development, Ryerson University. Frank, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
8: Okay, thanks, Scott. Goodbye. You're listening to
0: the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am. Uh, Masters over the weekend, your thoughts. Is this more about Tiger Woods or or the guy that won the tournament?
9: Uh, The guy who won the tournament, Scott Scheffler. I mean, he's been unbelievable. This is his fourth win in the past, like, three months, two months, something like that. Like, yeah, it's just been, you know, golf is hard to win a lot. You can play really well, but only one person out of the entire field gets to win, obviously. Yeah. And you know, one shot, one bad shot, two bad shots can usually cost you a tournament. This guy's won four times now in a really short period. And he's only 23, 24. Like, it's just crazy. Anyway, uh, it, it, of course, it was about Tiger Woods entirely, and I don't think he disappointed. I mean, he didn't win, but mm-hmm. I think the fact that he made the weekend, he made the cut. Uh, but Scott Scheffler, Scotty Scheffler, stole I think the thunder from him because he just that was an amazing weekend, especially in conditions that were yeah really really hard. I'll tell you the, the time I was down there in 2017, I was covering Mackenzie Hughes, the first time Dundas guy, the first time he played there. And the first day of the tournament, the wind was like it was on Friday, I think. this It was just howling. And that's a really hard course anyway. And now you throw in wind that is going from zero to 40, 50, 60 kilometers an hour just in gusts, and it becomes almost impossible because you now have to guess which club. And your club, you may guess, and the wind knocks it right down or the wind picks up and blows it an extra 30 yards. And so... You know, it, for everybody was struggling, except for this one guy mm. who was just tearing it up. It was amazing.
2: And then, you know, when things settled down on Sunday, many thought it would even out, but he just kept uh, his lead and kept extending his lead uh, pretty much through all the, the course of the tournament.
9: He, I mean, it got close for a while there, yeah. and you thought, okay, maybe, you know, maybe things start to clench a little bit, and maybe you get nervous, and maybe, no, he didn't. And it was, in fact, it was guys who had much more experience that looked like they clenched a little bit and he just rolled on now I mean like you, you never know how things might have been and it doesn't really matter if someone had caught him you wonder how that might have affected him when mm. he came in with a big lead but they never could and so you know ifs and buts and that old saying. I mean he just he was he was absolutely cold-blooded the whole time and it was amazing to watch because I I can tell you, Scott, the thing that always amazes me about golfers, I'm a terrible golfer. I don't know if you're a golfer or not, but uh, the idea of not just winning a green jacket, which for m- these guys is worth more than any amount of prize money you could give them. There's not if you If you made the Masters tournament for $0 of prize money, you would still attract the best field in the world, and they would still play their best because that green jacket is worth any amount of money to them. But even so, I think he did make two million bucks for winning. Uh, I've I've long thought about lining up for a putt that would be worth, you know, just playing around. Like, what what if that putt that you were hitting was worth a championship and a million or two for between first and second place? I can tell you, I things bad things would happen to my body and I would not be able to do it. I just I don't have that that whatever it is that allows you to shut everything out and just do it. It's it's just you- amazing to watch those guys.
2: You talk about the payday. What would someone like a Tiger Woods make for a payday, even finishing where he did? Because obviously for him, it's not about the prize money. It's the endorsement money. How much does he get to actually participate?
9: I think he probably made, well, I don't know exactly where he finished what number, but he probably made 70 or 80 or 100 grand, which for him uh, is the equivalent of, you know. It's us, dinner money. That's a lot of money. For him, yeah, that's like going to Tim's <laughs> and buying a small coffee. I mean, exactly. it means nothing to him. But, but the fact that, I mean, you just, you just said it with endorsements. This is a guy who's always been at the top of the blocks when it comes to endorsements. And just when you think, okay, maybe we're now at the descent of the hill. and You know, Michael Jordan still makes a lot of money, and Tiger Woods is never going to go hungry. But now, all of a sudden, he is right back in the public eye, and you've got to think that some of those companies are now rethinking and going, yeah, maybe we re-up with Tiger for another few years here at these enormous amounts because he's still relevant
2: who's on the show tonight
9: uh we are what are we going to be talking about we are going to be talking about um oh i know we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about the you know the the government has a new um disinformation internet bill that's coming up well what happens when it's the government itself that's spreading disinformation We're going to be talking about that because a whole lot of politicians were doing that a few weeks ago, and they've now been caught, and yet we are hearing nothing from them about an apology. So what does this mean if you or I do it compared to when they do? We'll talk about that right off the top.
2: Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen
0: to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Big Ben Strawn and Will Erskine for producing in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Whitard. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, to give us the last word.
9: Okay, I'm over 60. I've had all the COVID shots. And now I got to wait till May 26 to get my fourth one. I'm starting to feel like a pain cushion.